0: Welcome to Cruxcast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on CruxInvestor.com. So please subscribe. We
1: we'll speak today to
0: Jared Barron, who's the CEO of Deep Green Metals. They're a deep sea miner. We find out today what that means, and if you want to understand. Um, a little bit more detail and get our thoughts and opinions on the company and Jared himself. You can get that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club, along with company reports, uh, feedback from market experts from around the world. You can also get training courses. um, And there are a thriving community of investors on there sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other. And if you go and have a look now, there's a seven day free trial. Enjoy the podcast. Gerard, how are you doing, sir? Matthew, I'm well. How are you? Yeah, not too so bad. Good weekend. Uh, so, so, where are you? Where, where, I, I know the story of where you are, but you've got to tell people where you are because those curtains need explaining.
1: <laughs> well, my, um, my daughter attends Leeds University this year and we dropped her off a week ago. And, um, you know, I'm in that rare period of not travelling much, but I'm about to start travelling. In the next few days, so I, I've taken the opportunity to come and check in on her and make sure she survived freshers week okay, and uh, uh, before I, I, I head to the United States. So,
0: good man, yeah. good man. Got it, got to be done.
1: Hundred years background. Um,
0: they, they don't seem to have changed uh, too much since since I was there, and probably since you were there. The, the whoever's in charge of decor needs needs a word. <laughs> well,
1: hopefully the money's going into uh, education. right
0: now. Let's yeah. hope your money. Yeah. Um, right. Well, look, 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 we we are here today to hear about your company as a private company. Just uh, let people know that, but that, that may be changing at some point in the future. Uh, Deep green metals. So you can tell us all about it. Why don't you give us a one minute overview of the business, and then we'll. Pick it up from there.
1: Yeah, so so we're all about opening up a new industry, and that industry is ocean metals. And so um, you know, it's it's we know that seventy percent of the planet is covered in water, and you know, land-based mining and other fossil fuel extraction all happened uh, first because it was more obvious that actually these metals still form in the ocean. In in some ways the same as they form on land, but in our case we're focused on nodules, or we call them rocks, polymetallic rocks. And we've been at this for a decade, and we're about opening up this new industry. And it's 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 an amazing story, Matthew, which I look forward to sharing with your your viewers because it, it uh, what you'll learn is that it's a resource that's made for made for now because it contains all of the battery materials we need to fuel this green transition. So.
0: Okay. So I, I need to understand the, the business model, because you've been out at it 10-years. So you must know what you're going to hone in on um, and all the big questions, because I don't know much about this other than obviously in the oil and gas business, they do a lot of deep-sea drilling, but uh, you know, I'd love to understand the parallels to that. But let's start with the business plan. So 10-years in, what are you trying to do?
1: So the first thing that uh, we have are exploration licenses. So, so we've secured those and um, we're in the <clears throat> what's known as the high seas. So the high seas are governed by the International Seabed Authority. And the ISA was established in 1994 with the express purpose of putting in place a regulatory regime to allow the development of this industry. So we have exploration licenses. So over the last uh, decade, we've been busy defining the resource. And that's been um, a, a very easy task because we're focused on one area called the CCZ, the Clarion clipperton Zone, where these nodules were discovered way back in the 1870s by um, explorers funded by the Royal Society. And so we're, we're focused on that area only. And uh, it's a 2D resource. So these nodules literally lay on the ocean floor. And so we have, uh, as a Canadian company, we're 43101 compliant. We have two um, inferred resource statements. Uh, we're about to announce part of that moving to become an indicated resource. And in fact, we've even taken some of it to measure it. And so defining the resource is one of the things. Um, the, the, the next thing is, to carry out the work that's required to submit our application to move from exploration to extraction. And so we're in the middle of uh, very extensive work programs which are focused on environmental um, permitting. So um, we recently announced that we'll be spending, well, we are spending more than $60 million to complete that work. We'll have more than 100 discrete studies uh, in fact, it's the largest ever ocean floor to surface environmental ocean study. And, um, and, and we're asked, you know, we're answering the, the questions of what are the impacts of removing these nodules? You know, what about any dust that gets kicked up? What, what's the impact of that? And, uh, and That will all form the basis of our environmental impact assessment. Um, we're busy building our pilot harvesting system, so we're doing all the things that you would do with any project to get it to a, a bankable feasibility stage. And,
0: um, okay, so there's a lot of things you've described there which sound like conventional mining. It should be. You're- you know, you're trying to find uh, metals uh, in rocks. Uh, it just happens you've got a lot of water uh, involved, as well, seawater as well. Which, you know, which you know, I guess I suspect has its own challenges. Um, so a 43. So what are you after? What type of metals are you after in these nodules or these rocks? First of all, I want to understand which market you're in.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, these nodules form very differently to anything um, on land. They they actually precipitate and. and because I've been on a train traveling to Leeds, it's one of the rare occasions in my life where I don't have a nodule. I, I ran out the door too quickly. But they're about the size of a potato, so they fit in the palm of your hand. They come in medium, large, and small. And they form through a very slow precipitation process. So they precipitate the metals that are either in the ocean water or in the sediment upon which they sit. And so the reason why... The CCZ, which is about a thousand miles off the coast of Mexico, is the area of interest, it is because the Rockies and Andes were covered in nickel and copper, and as all of those metals eroded into the ocean, they uh, they settled in the the Pacific Ocean and provided the feedstock for these nodules to form. So, so our nodules are very rich in nickel and copper and cobalt and manganese, and They also contain uh, rare earths as well. But we're focused on those first four metals primarily. And so in other parts of the ocean, for example, in the North Sea, you can also find nodules, but they're not worth recovering. They're just iron hydroxides and a little bit of manganese, and they're not worth picking up. Whereas our nodules are very valuable because they contain... Around 1.4% nickel and about 1.1% copper, 0.2% cobalt, and about 30% manganese. So, it's an amazing resource um, given what times we live in.
0: Yeah, um, I, I guess very attractive to anyone thinking or liking the whole EV thematic that's going on at the moment. Um, and I guess that's where you're aiming the story. I noticed you mentioned that you you will have spent organ- to complete the studies that you're doing, the EIA or equivalent thereof, sixty million bucks. So who's been funding this to date?
1: Uh, well, the sixty million dollars is only the environmental work. Yeah. Uh, we will have spent about two hundred million dollars, and so okay. Um, we've been primarily backed by um, people like myself, you know, private investors. Who, who um, and more recently we've had some uh, larger strategic type investors as well. So Maersk, who you know as a shipping company, uh, invested uh, about 4-years ago, uh, one of the largest high players in the deep ocean for oil and gas. All seas uh, invested a significant sum last year and even Glencore invested some money uh, some years ago.
0: Okay. So Maersk shipping, do they give you cash or just lend you a, a ship?
1: How's that work? Uh, yeah, no, it was a combination, uh, but it was primarily about 4-years ago, what we were really looking for was uh, validation. And, and at that time, MERSC were going through a massive restructure, but primarily what they give us is a, a boat that's moored down in San Diego, uh, uh, that's crude and full of full of uh, diesel. And, and, you know, basically they bring their Expertise in managing these large, complex projects, and so they've been a very instrumental partner. But, but in the case of Maersk, uh four years ago, it was primarily services. In the case of Allseas and Glencore, it was cash.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. And around two hundred million in total, which is inclusive of that sixty million on the environmental component. Okay. Yes. So you, you talked about the International Seabed Authority. Um, and being around since 1994, I mean, 20, 20, 25, 26 years. Um, there, yeah. are they? Are they the equivalent of your regulator? I mean, ha, ha, who regulates this? Because when you talk about a 43101 and uh, measured and indicated and inferred and so forth, not too many people know about mining underwater. I mean, mining, not not oil mm-hmm. and gas. So, how does it all work?
1: So the regulator is. Um is the International Seabed Authority, and and it was established um, in 1994 uh, under the guidance of the United Nations. And so there are 167 member states plus the European Union. And so think of it as a United Nations-type organisation. And their job is to put in place the regulatory environment, which means the regulatory controls, which means the oversight through standards and guidelines and so on. Um, do they know a lot about 43101s? 101s Probably not. That's our job to bring that expertise because we need to define our resource so we can continue to raise finance to develop the project. But what we will be um, required to do is to meet some very stringent, of course, environmental Uh, guidelines and um, and and they will be enforced by the by the ISA right and and if you if you think about them as a regulator a lot of the undeveloped um, resources around the world are in developing countries and so that that comes with its own set of challenges whether it's um, changing rules unstable fiscal regimes um, sometimes corruption. And so we think that the ISA, while it's, um, you know, somewhat of a slow moving beast, because it was set up 25 years ago, it's, it's you know, it has moved quite slowly, but it's, it's about to be, you know, open for business. So it's a very exciting time. And this will be the first time that a asset that's deemed the common heritage of mankind has ever been developed. Because if we cast our mind back to the development of this industry, discovered in the 1870s, um, in the 1970s, they started to collect these nodules. There were consortium involving Mitsubishi, BP, Shell, uh, Kennecott were involved, um, Inco, and Lockheed Martin. And so they, they operated on the premise that they would be able to lay claim over the area uh, because no one had agreed who owned the oceans. And so in today's language, they spent about a billion dollars. And But it was the United Nations who stepped in and said, sorry, you can't develop this. Um, and so basically all the players had to go home. Their, their assumption that they could lay claim was wrong. And in 1982, UNCLOS was agreed, the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea. And what that says is that, you know, you own as a sovereign, you own everything within 12 miles. You have an economic right to everything within 200 miles, but beyond that, it's owned by everyone. It's the common heritage of mankind, and that's it's that's a very exciting project from many aspects.
0: So why so why didn't those big guys come rushing back in once the it, 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 it was clarified? Um, because you've sent a, they've sent a billion bucks between them, you're saying, you're telling us, it's a lot. there's a lot of money. You don't spend a billion bucks if you don't think there's some economic viability to it. And you know, I think you're making out that it was, you know, admin was was the was the problem. So why haven't they come rushing back in?
1: Well, so that was um, in the late 70s, and of course, uh, back then, you had, you know, energy companies were, were very diversified. So, they were mining companies and they were oil and gas companies. And so, but the mining companies, well, they went looking for more land-based resources, and the oil and gas companies went looking offshore for more fossil fuels. And and keep in mind, that was the ni- late 1970s. UNCLOS was put into place in '82, but the International Seabed Authority was only established in 1994. So there's a passage of time and a lot of that corporate memory gets lost. And so the first licenses were only granted in 2001. And of course, the um, you know, we're, we're on the doorstep now. Uh, in fact, in 2020, the final, it's called the exploitation code, was due to be uh, in place. But due to COVID, the uh, ISA hasn't been able to meet. And so that final code, will only fall into place, in, well, we anticipate it will be next year, 2021. So that's kind of the the industry is open for business when all of that falls into being. And so, so if you think the passage of time from the late 70s to here we are, 2020, and we're only now on the doorstep of that final certainty, thanks to the uh, exploitation regulations being in place. So... You know, corporations don't wait around. You know, they they, they don't have the patience. Um, they have to get busy, and, and that's what they did. And so, you know, you don't see, and of course, if you look at it now, um, our shareholders of a strategic nature have been Mersk and all seas. You know, those are companies who are very familiar with the deep ocean. They are um, not frightened by the fact that we're in 4,000 meters of water. For them, it's like we operate there all the time. And so it's not been the mining companies that we've gone to, to invite in. We've purposely gone to an industry that has everything to gain and nothing to lose. And, of course, the offshore oil and gas industry, the services side, is, has been in a very poor state. And so they have a lot of expertise and a lot of assets that they're looking to repurpose. So this is a perfect industry that offers them hope.
0: Okay, and who else is doing this? What's the competition look like?
1: Yeah, we, So there are 17 licenses, so you have to be a sovereign or sponsored by a sovereign to have an area. And so we have three blocks, each 75,000 square kilometers, uh, and sponsored by three developing countries, Nauru, Tonga, and Kiribati. But China are very active. Uh, The United Kingdom uh, are active. They sponsor uh, Lockheed Martin's application. Uh, You have the Belgians involved. You have Singapore. Uh, Korea, Japan, France, Germany. So a lot of big, heavy-hitting nations. Uh, and I guess most importantly, China. China has um, three blocks in total. Two of them are in the CCZ where we're focused. And you know we, we, we think it's important to see their progress uh, alongside ours because they're such an influential voice.
0: And, so, and how significantly advanced are any of those Nations or companies that are being backed by those nations? Is anyone actually producing today?
1: No, no, I'd, I'd say we're we are at the forefront. And until we have the final exploitation code in place, then we're not able to extract and sell. And so what we're busy doing now is completing all of those steps um, through our pre fees and final fees um, to enable us to, to lodge our application. And then to extract for commercial, commercial gain. Okay. And we expect that we'll be shipping product in two thousand and twenty-four.
0: Right. So you so again, just sort of for for people who are used to sort of conventional mining, there's a there's a lot of um, similarities. I mean, that you're, you're using phrases for, so like forty-three, one hundred one, and pre and feasibility studies and so forth, and which kind of lends some comfort around the economics. So, um, how do they differ? With the because again, I'm not, I'm not sure if you walked up to um, most firms um, and said, "Right, I need you to do a pre-feasibility study for me." It's 4,000 kilometers um, under underwater. Sorry, 4,000 meters underwater and about a thousand kilometers offshore. Uh, they'd know what yeah. to do. So, no, how does it work?
1: Right. Yeah, so, so I guess that's one of the, the key assets that we've established inside of our company. Um, the people that know how to do this. And so um, our resource statement is signed off by AMC, who are one of the most respected names in the industry. And so... um, So who who are
0: they? Tell me more.
1: AMC are our our technical uh, lead authors for our um, preliminary economic assessment. But why are they qualified to do that for you? Because you need... Around resource definition. Okay, so they're they're probably the leading voice for the mining industry to sign off technical reports. Underwater. No, for resources. Okay, for resources. So what we've had to do is take an AMC, and firstly, the resources are um, much easier to define, and and the reason for that is that they literally sit on the water, they sit on the ocean floor. And so we don't have to drill for them or dig for them because most resources are uh, 3D, right? Whereas ours is 2D, it just covers a large area. Think of golf balls on a driving range. That's what we have. And so we've surveyed every single piece of it. And so we're, we, we have a very uh, fine survey data, which, which then... We, we complement that by taking box cores, which at regular intervals, and we take the box cores so we can measure the, um, the the weight per square meter, the resources estimated by kilograms per square meter. So we can test the grade, and so we can uh, study any of the organisms that are living in the mud or, or with the nodules. So it's it's teaching some old dogs, new tricks, basically. But to define the resource, um, if you were drilling holes on land, as as you know, you might drill holes 50 kilometers apart. And as you get more and more certain and send the resource further up the certainty pole, you have to drill your holes a lot closer. Whereas in our case, um, we've agreed with our, our technical experts that we can take those box core samples now every 10 kilometers that's, high, that's how high the resource certainty is. It's uh, because it correlates uh, very precisely with the survey data that we can take. And we, If you go to our website at deep.green, you'll find um, images of, of how we define the resource. Um, you'll find lots of little interviews there with our, our lead geologists. And it, it, you don't have to imagine it. It's there to see. And so uh, we're taking you know, the, the resource uh, expertise of, of the current industry, companies like AMC. And um, our own project lead was formerly the, the global head of base metals exploration for BHP. And so, you know, brings an enormous amount of expertise in defining or looking for and discovering resources. And so, so it's... Uh, and if and if you look at our, some of the videos um, when we recover the box core samples, it's it is just a field of nodules. Like right? all you can see are nodules. It's uh,
0: right. It's I like I like the analogy of, of of a golf course covered in golf balls. It makes it easier for me to uh, understand. Um, let's come back to the EI because some of the, some of the problems around conventional mining are displacement of people, you know water tables being affected and so forth so i think you don't have those issues of displacing people or affecting people uh, you, you there is a lot of marine li- marine life down there presumably and it's part of your eia which is you know, the 60 000, 60 million number it's a, it's a significant number but again who judges that who who is to say that what you are what you are not doing is the right thing ecologically
1: well Ultimately, it will come down to the International Seabed Authority. So they will um, assess our application that we lodge with them. And, um, and so they give us some guiding principles about the areas of interest. And so and we obviously go and carry out that work. And if you, um, you know, we need to understand what it's like down there. We're in what's known as the abyssal zone, it's the most common area on the planet. It just happens to be on the bottom of the ocean. It's uh, it's an area of low energy, low food. Most of the, the food simply is biomass that falls down through the water column. And so you don't see plants growing down there. You don't see lots of abundant fish or wildlife. Most of the organisms are living in the mud. And so they're microbial organisms that are, that are surviving in the sediment. And so you, you do find sea cucumbers and sometimes organisms that it will be sitting on, on the nodules. So our studies have been very focused around, well, w- what is the impact if we take away the nodule? Because for those organisms that are sitting on them, well, that's going to be disturbed. Um, what happens about stirring up the mud? How far will it travel? How quickly will it resettle? And then, what about any impacts on the water column? Because we're using a riser um, to 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 move the nodules up, and um, and interestingly, um, you know, we we feel very confident around the results of all of those programs um, because you know one of our ambitions as a company is to identify, you know, what where are the lowest impact supply of these important all bodies. If we're going to transition away from fossil fuels, we're going to need to build a lot of batteries, as we all know. And so, what we looked at um, and have invested a lot of money into to studies around this, including our white paper that we launched on uh, Earth Day this year, titled "Where Should the Metals for the Green Transition Come From?" Um, in fact, we, we just have had a subset of that white paper published in a journal. Uh, the journal for cleaner production, um, just in recent days, which we're very proud of, A- and that really looked at the full life cycle analysis, the impacts of 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 what happens if we, you know, source these metals from known land-based ore bodies, or alternatively, if we focus on nodules, and you know, we can compress the impacts by, for example more than 90% from a CO2 perspective, if we build those batteries out of nodules, we'll generate no tailings because the nodules contain only very trace levels of any deleterious elements. And so we don't generate tailings, we don't generate waste material, and we only use around 10% of the amount of water. So the the benefits that this resource delivers are, are phenomenal when you compare it to what the land-based alternatives are and of course you mentioned social dislocation, Um, tailings are another big issue that we know investors are very concerned about Um, and of course just generally the falling grade of all bodies on land means that you have to move a lot more dirt to get the same amount of, of material and so you know it's time for a rethink and I'm sure if we were starting afresh today and thinking about this from a planetary perspective we'd be getting our metals out of the ocean you know we wouldn't be digging up our most biodiverse habitats tipping our tailings into the ocean as we sometimes do building all these tailings dams that sometimes don't stand the test of time you know nodules are a fabulous uh, resource
0: they are and i know you've been dealing with the ecological environmental component there and i do appreciate that um, can you talk to me a bit about where you are? Do you say you have done or are doing a PFS? Where where are you with yep. You've done you've done one. So can you? It, it's obviously. I always say to people PFSs have you know thirty plus or minus minus thirty percent with regards to the economics there. But can you give us a sense of the numbers because uh, you're you're telling a tale of it's available. There's a lot of nodules down there. There's thousands of square kilometers of of nodules down there, and we and you've identified. Where some of those are um, the environmental and ecological component. I'm, I'm I'm buying into. I like the kind of lower zero or the lower or zero carbon uh, footprint uh, to yeah. how you go about mining. I like that, but cost. You must get this a lot. Is it? Because sure. I, I know you give us a clue. You said it's lowest quartile, but you know how good are the yeah. numbers?
1: Yeah, the numbers are good. Um, and the numbers are good for several reasons. One is the the polymetallic nature of it. You know, so in the same ton of material, we have 1.4% nickel, we have 1.1% copper, 0.2% cobalt, and 30% manganese. So you know the, the numbers mean that each one of those would be a good resource by itself. If you look last year, the average grade of copper mine was less than half of one percent. So we've got one point one percent, and we've got one point four percent nickel, and so on. So, so you've got to start with grade, and as everyone in the mining industry uh, says, it's about grade, 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 and so that's where you begin to drive the, the better economics. And then of course it's the, and this drives economics and the environmental impacts that you don't have to move as much material. That you, you know, when, we, when we collect our nodules, we put them on a transporter, we'll then send it to a, a processing facility north, but we can send that, we can build that processing facility anywhere in the world. We won't have to build a new deepwater port so that'll be one of the requirements. We will build it near a supply of renewable power. We'll build it somewhere with roads and rail and water and and infrastructure. And you don't have that benefit generally in the mining sector today. And that's one of the things that will allow us to scale this much faster as well, because infrastructure is a, a limiting factor. You know, if you've got a build a 5 billion new port to open up some more access. It's like, well, that's a massive hurdle. Whereas we don't have that infrastructure to be able to get going and keep moving. So that's one of the drive, another driver for the economics. And and of course, um, what then makes it very timely is that the production vessels that will be the the mothership that will sit on top of the water, if you like, um, that will then power the harvesters that will operate to collect the rocks. Um, we can repurpose a lot of assets that were utilised for the oil and gas industry that are now lying unused. Drill ships, for example. In fact, our partner Allseas acquired a drill ship um, for cents in the dollar uh, recently. A drill ship that was an $800 million asset, you know, less than 10 years ago. Uh, a Samsung 10,000, they were able to buy cents in the dollar to repurpose for this application, and so you know we'll be able to continue to do that. We'll be able to scale that idea up to to be able to convert more of those ships into to this production environment, and so so that means some of the capital barriers that would be otherwise there uh, dissipate, and so but that's a bonus almost. Um, but as far as, let me go back to the economics. Um, if you look at our projects as a nickel project, because just over half of the revenue will come from nickel, then we'll produce a pound of nickel for minus $3.11 per pound. So that's there's only one cheaper nickel producer in the world, and of course that's Nurelsk. And so, um, but neurosk has... Some limitations, right? They they can't easily expand their nickel production, whereas uh, we don't have those limitations.
0: Right. Okay. So when's the feasibility uh, completed? When do you get a little bit
1: more certainty around those numbers? So we'll have our pilot mining system in the water um, in Q1 2022, and so. But generally, people in the offshore industry are very relaxed about that. You know, back in the 1970s, they successfully operated these remote harvesters on the seafloor at 4,000 meters. And so a lot's happened since the late 70s. You know, the, the development of the oil and gas industry, pipeline, cable lane. So the expertise available to us is so much greater. And the pilot processing work will be pretty well done this year. So we'll be out of our pilot processing work. Um, And then, of course, it's the environmental um, data that we're gathering. And we won't be completed those studies until we complete our pilot mining system, because one of the important elements is for us to observe and report on the impacts of the pilot harvesting. Um, But, you know, when you look at the impacts, you know, we we feel very, very confident that, you know, this is the right thing to be doing. And... um, so, so by we'll have that completed sort of by the middle of um, twenty two, and so we'll then lodge our application, and uh, the regulator has three hundred and thirty days to give us an answer, and hopefully we'll be then into business.
0: Well, that was the next question. How long does that take? Because um, normally uh, permitting and licensing can take longer in some some jurisdictions. Um, so. Yes. International Seabed Authority have got less than a year to come back to you. Fine. Um, Are you worried about people abusing that? Because how how does the International Seabed Authority validate what you've said?
1: With the help of a lot of expertise. And so um, if you look at who the International Seabed Authority is made up of, 167 countries, including countries like uh, Australia, big mining jurisdiction, obviously, including countries like Canada, the same. And so, so you have a lot of activity available to it, and so so we feel that they're going to be a tough regulator, make no doubt about it. And so, but we're happy for that. You know, we want everyone to be held to a very high environmental standard as this industry opens up.
0: But is there anything that makes you nervous in there about people? Because again, people abuse systems all the time, right? So. I, the, 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 the controls are you know it's everything's underwater you can't see what's going on we don't know who's playing by the game and who's not um, does any of it make you nervous do you, do you want to see more
1: regulation in something like this We want to see the appropriate amount of regulation and I think what the um, the balance right now is in a good place but the regulations also will be driven by companies like deep green who will, set very high watermarks. So for example, you know, we're all familiar with the term digital twin. And so we want to use the digital twin, which we'll make available to the regulator. So they'll get to see what we're doing. Um, I see no reason why we won't make it available to society, for society to look at what we're doing. Because, you know, people are rightfully concerned about the impacts because they've seen some of the devastation that's happened as a result of terrestrial mining. So they're worried, oh my God, will it be the same for ocean resources? And of course, um, no, it won't be because they're very different resources. So, so no, I'm not worried about that, Matthew. I, I think that, that I, I do want to strive to be you know, a company that's, that's exceeding the requirements and you know, being very transparent as well and travel in the open is one of our commitments and um, you know report our successes and report our failures
0: brilliant Ger- Gerard, i mean just just um I, th- I mean thank you very much for running through that like i say it's it's going to be new to a lot of people and you know it's it's new to us too so as an overview of a of a, a new way of mining resources it's 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 been fascinating um, and i'm sure you could spend a lot more time getting into the into the weeds on on a lot of those um, topics we discussed today um you did kind of give us a bit of a clue at the beginning that you're clearly a private company now. Two hundred million pumped in. Any thoughts about going public at some point? Does that appeal?
1: Look, we are always thinking about where are the best sources of, of capital to help develop this industry, and um, and yeah, we we are constantly evaluating whether that is the public markets, um, whether that's you know to keep it in private hands. I. I I very much like the idea of, of the higher profile that a public company brings because like you admitted you hadn't heard of this resource or this industry and most people are the same and so one of the biggest challenges we have is how to how to properly uh, disperse the right information because most people when they see the um, you know they get the fact sheet it's it's a no-brainer you know yes of course we we don't shy away from the fact that there will be some impacts we know that for example there'll be some microbial organisms that will be disturbed Uh, every single thing we do on this planet has an impact right so we own that Um, the fact is there'll be you know a fraction of the impacts compared to the alternatives and so having you know uh, the, the public markets to be able to communicate that i think would be advantageous for the. You know the development of this industry, so it's something that you know the board talk about you know on a regular basis, and and you know we, we, we get approached about it all the time because it is a story that captures people's imagination, and so you know watch this space.
0: Well, yeah, I, th- I think mainly you know I think the thing which really captures people's imagination is the timelines that you've given. If if you can come back with a feasibility study which says econ- the economics are there and you can start producing by 2024 and show us the sorts of scale that you're going to be able to achieve because people are looking for the next big Nickel mine, okay? And that doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon, okay? The grades are getting lower, um, the costs are getting higher, The damage done to the environment is getting higher. There's a lot of reasons why people are a bit nervous about where where this future nickel um, demand is going to be supplied from. So, if you can start answering some of those questions, I think you can have a lot of interest for sure.
1: Mm. Yeah, I hope so. And I, I and we want people to be challenging, you know, asking some of the questions that that need to be asked, like, what are the societal and and environmental impacts of these metals that we're producing now? Like, I don't know if you've been to Indonesia to see what's happening with the development of the laterite industry there, but it's, it's frightening. And, of course, because they can't build tailings dams, the tailings will go into the Coral Triangle. So, I mean tell me in any circumstance where that makes sense. It just doesn't, when there's a much better and safer alternative. And so, and you know, we're very, very excited that not only are we doing these studies, but we're also having you know, such great institutions as MIT who have a big team focused on this. And I know MIT will be publishing some very important papers in the coming months. Which, because they've been studying some of these uh, plume topics. because if you were to listen to some people they would say the plume will be have a big impact will travel for you know hundreds of kilometers and will never settle wrong you know we've done our own studies and great organizations like mit will simply add add to that and so you know there are some people that just they just want us to consume less and recycle more, and that will solve everything. But we know that's not the case, uh, and I think your your listeners know that better than anyone.
0: So. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of all, all of the above, and yeah, we have looked at Indonesia and lattarite versus sulfide, and all of the, the the pros and the cons of each. Um, look. Like I say, Jared, I know you are going to want to get back to your daughter. Um, so, thank you very much for making time whilst seeing her to talk to us and educate us about the possibilities of uh, under well, deep sea uh, mining. I appreciate it. We'll speak to you again soon.
1: Pleasure. Thanks,
0: Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor.